Tettleton, and I am the 2023 Global President of the Women's Energy Network, also known as WEN. WEN is focused on developing a community of energy professionals across the world who are connected locally and networked globally. This podcast is yet another way for WEN to feature our talented members in the energy community. I hope you can learn something new and enjoy your time with us today. Welcome to the WEN Podcast today. My name is Cara Byrne, and today we're going to talk about commodities. So the global landscape of energy commodities has undergone significant transformations throughout history, reflecting shifts in technological advancements, economic priorities, and environmental concerns. From the early days of relying on conventional fossil fuels to power industrial revolutions to the current drive towards cleaner and more sustainable energy sources, the energy sector has been at the forefront of change. Thanks, Cara. As you know, this evolution has been driven by an increasing awareness of the environmental impacts associated with traditional energy commodities, along with a response in the market prompting a reevaluation of our energy mix. As we stand at a crossroads of a rapidly changing world, it becomes crucial to not only understand the trajectory of energy commodities, but also to anticipate the emergence of novel future commodities. Today, we welcome Jasmine Zhu of Future who will guide us through the intricate world of energy commodity attributes and share her inspiring career journey. I met Jasmine a few years ago at the Greater New York City chapter's very first in-person event for the year 2021. It happened to be our annual year in celebration. I was personally in the middle of my rotation through the first season of our new mentoring program. As a board member, I instantly snapped into recruitment mode and thought Jasmine would be a great fit for co-leading the evolving mentor program. Little did she know. She ultimately was willing to take on that task. She and her co-lead, Chelsea, really elevated our program, integrating diverse virtual and online events to support the program's growth and development. Jasmine helped take the Greater New York City Chapter Mentor Program to the next level. As we navigate the complexities of energy resources and their evolving environmental considerations, our guest brings a wealth of expertise that promises to enlighten and inspire us all. Welcome, Jasmine. Thank you. Great to be here. Welcome. I'm excited to have you here today, uh, Jasmine. One of the things that I like to start out with is, first of all, number one, love that you were voluntold to be the mentoring chair of the New York chapter. That is our new word on this entire podcast because I voluntold Maggie and Beth to be on it. But ultimately, I wanted to understand a little bit more about your career journey, how it spanned a few countries and that you actually had a career pause along the way. So you've, you've done a lot. Can you just tell us a little bit about your history? Yeah, no, it's great. Being voluntold to do stuff is uh, probably the best way to get things done. And it really helps motivate others to follow when you continue the voluntold structure of how things <laughs> exactly. Done. So no, I'm super excited to be here. Just a little bit of my career journey. I've been in commodities pretty much my entire career now, going up over 20 years plus now. I spent about 13 years with Morgan Stanley sales and trading team, starting out with their operations group, and then had the opportunity to go overseas to help build out and grow the China desk post-financial crisis. And it was a super interesting time within the marketplace because the U.S. European countries were struggling a bit and trying to get back into how it was pre-crisis. And China was booming. It was developing super quickly. And there's lots of stimulation money going around. And you see a lot of commodities, trading houses, banks all heading to the east because that is where the demand is. 
And I think ultimately the marketplace ends up being a demand-driven marketplace, regardless of which commodities that you're looking at. So it was a really interesting and, and, and exciting time in my career to be able to work out of a different country for a few years. And then uh, came back to the States and got involved with natural gas and LNG in the origination side of things. And that was when the U.S. shell revolution was really taking off. And there was a lot of capital involvement. In Banks were willing to lend, producer willing to drill, a lot of cheap commodities floating around. And um, it was a very, very exciting time and big comeback for, for the commodities market as a whole. And then in 2015, um, I took a break and spent four years home as a stay-at-home mom when I had my first child. Uh, and it was great to be able to dedicate that time, my personal time, just to be a, a, a parent. And it was very fortunate enough that I was able to do that for a bit. But ultimately, I know that I, I, I love the market too much and I wanted to come back to it. And I went to uh, work at S&P Global, which was super exciting to be working with some of the, the top analysts in this marketplace and in the world. And then spent two and a half years there and then decided or at least saw some of the writings in the walls in terms of where all the oil and gas guys are going, which is transitioning into cleaner, greener, renewable space. And that's what brought me to expansive, which was one of the leading global platforms when it comes down to transacting carbon offsets, RECs, and also interestingly enough, water. So that was my journey. And then two months prior to today, expansive had a spinoff entity called Future, which is uh, mostly focused around data and digitization of data and bringing transparency into the marketplace and hoping to contextualize some of the governance around the data that's being put out there. And this is where hopefully we get to spend some time and talk about. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Every single time the market was shifting, you were looking to what it was shifting to. And you kind of got in front of it by participating in it, whether or not you knew that or not, right? I go back to the early part of 2010s, and I still remember my boss going, why would LNG ever come to North America, right? But you were already making that move here. When that was happening, did you do that on purpose? Did you get in front of the market or do you think the market got just pulled you in the right direction? If I knew that, I would have been a lot richer and wealthier today. <laughs> so obviously I didn't, but I think this is one of those things that you go towards something that, that excites you and that you're interested in. And it ends up just being less of a monetary reason to to make career moves, but more of a passion to do things. LNG was super interesting because when I was based out of China, I was doing sales and trading in the physical coal market. So all of my clients at that point were utilities and, and uh, power generators in Korea and Japan and China, et cetera. And then when 2013, 14 timeframe came, all that interest started to shift to North America and said, well, why is... Henry Hub gas $3 and LNG was 19, you know, so it was super interesting timing wise and also the ability to be able to tie up the equations from the supply and the demand side was what makes commodities super interesting as a market. You've had quite the journey, Jasmine. I really want to hear about your current role. I know it's new. It's about it's two, two months to the day is when it started. So happy two month anniversary. What does future provide? How how, do, how are they differentiated from other companies in the market? Thanks for asking that question. Uh, Future is actually a climate 
tech category of an organization. The tech comes from what we're building of what we're calling uh, smart programs and, and smart stands for standard market and registry template. With the smart program comes with the tech and the climate piece comes with all the data that's involved around decarbonization. It's really the ambition to help decision-making. You know, it's the ability to utilize data in different ways, whether you are a borrower or a lender, a producer or an end user. We're seeing more and more of the need for that transparency and for that data to be quantified, but also contextualized in a meaningful way, right? Data is data, but if it has no context behind it, how does one use that and make decisions around it? And the decisions are not just around, you know, risk management. It's also about new paths to generate revenue, new optimization ideas, uh, or even creating new products on the back of instruments that are currently trading or starting to trade and building new marketplaces and driving change as a whole. Jasmine, you mentioned revenue, and I'm fairly new to the energy markets. I've spent most of my career in manufacturing but can you help me and guide our listeners? Because I'm just fascinated by how you make money in this. There's so many different ways and it's so much different than what I'm used to where I'm selling a product or a gallon of this or a pound of this. And here we've got these different markets, these different revenue streams based on things that we can't see, um, offsets and things like that. Would you mind kind of just walking us through the energy markets and the different ways that your revenue flows? Yeah, what makes this super innovative, like what we're doing at the moment is that we're trying to put pricing differentiation in between the same, in between the same underlying product, which historically has never had that differentiator, right? One barrel of crude is one barrel of crude, except you have a bit of that basis difference from location and then MMBTU of gas is the same thing, your Hemi Hub plus or minus. But the carbon intensity that goes into these underlying commodities would vary. It depends on the location. It depends on the formation of the rocks where you're drilling from. Depends on the technology that the operator is using. Is it the diesel generator or is it electrification that supply? So the carbon footprint for the underlying commodity is different. But it was never historically been identified or uh, been a concept to stakeholders and market users. Now we're looking at increasing demand around what is the impact, the climate on the back of people's behaviors and the practices that, especially around oil and gas industry, right? It's around, well, how clean is this? Should we continue to operate under this current environment? Does the bank need to consider reducing some of the exposure that they're, they're lending? Uh, and and how do you really you know quantify that risk? And without knowing that underlying data, you wouldn't be able to make an intelligent decision. And going back to the question around revenue, yeah, the revenue is a it's a nice to have. It's not guaranteed purely because the market isn't mature enough to have that form of a liquidity. It still varies. Whereas this traditional commodities market is very liquid. You see CME, you see ICE, you know, there's tons of activities going on, contracts going up 15, 20 years. That's not where we are today. But we think if there's enough behavior change to incentivize operators to improve their production and, and reduce that carbon footprint, then the market should incentivize 
the producers through higher paying higher premiums, just like you and I or others, consumers, are willing to check the box that says, yes, I like to offset my footprint on this train ticket or this flight because you feel that there is some form of a of a incentive to promote and continue to drive that behavior change. You know, for me in the battery world, an electron is electron is an electron. They're indistinguishable. But how I get to that electron obviously is very different as there's a different carbon footprint into storing that, that coming in and everything. So thank you for that. One of the concepts is got these this need for transparency, right? Where people want to understand who is getting credit for what, how is it happening, where is it coming from? Uh, the banks are using it to make decisions. Oil and gas companies are making it decision based on what's happening around them in order to know where to invest. Obviously, newer companies are coming out of the woodwork. It seems like every other day. <laughs> I don't even know where some of the companies are coming from. I, I kind of get why we need transparency, but in your opinion, why do we need transparency and and what have been the issues surrounding what's going on? Because there are so many players and stakeholders in this. I think it gets confusing when it gets down to who's using the credit and for what. Yeah, a transparency for sure is required, but also what do you do with that transparency? Like who's where's the governance around that transparency? How do you ensure that there is no conflict of interest between developers of a project to the issuers of the credit to the writers of a protocol to the sponsors of a project? Where does all of the different roles and responsibilities sit? And how does the ownership of that ultimate product, that ultimate credit or certificate or or something gets claimed and gets reported? So this is something that Future has really spent a lot of time into building out this ecosystem so that there is a known definition around the different roles that each player plays within program itself and ensuring that there's governance around that and there's an independent validator or verifier or that the calculations done in an automated way as opposed to a self-attestation or manually plugged in that there is a platform where someone could go in and be able to identify and trace back to its origin of how something was originated from the source, from the facility, the time, the date, etc. And there are a lot of companies uh, coming into the marketplace with very different technologies, very in- lots of innovations to really refine the data and to bring higher resolution on around the cameras, you know, like more real-time data points, you know, wider uh, range data that, that that comes into, into the equation to really help hone in the granularity of that. But it needs to start somewhere. We just can't continue to just go under this data world without being able to at least package it fundamentally in a way where then market players could start to adapt baby steps, right? Baby steps into certain format and then build on top of it. I mean, it's a it's a very new market. A lot of us are learning from each other. We're trying to come up with ideas collectively as opposed to being, you know, running independently to try to change the market is really hoping to work with the market and evolve it and learning on the back of what we already know and how things work. Part of the issue with people understanding what commodities are, in the past it's always been we trade something physical right? 
we're trading a barrel of oil, we're trading a tanker of LNG, we're doing something that people can see, they can touch, they can, well, hopefully they don't feel it. But, you know, the idea behind it is that you can grasp the concept of the quantity of things going back and forth. I feel like with carbon credits, it's a little more, I think the word I'm looking for is esoteric, right? Because they're they're intangible, they're not physical assets that we're trading. And so I was just curious how that impact the legality behind that and what does that play into when people are are claiming these credits? Does it play into the disbelief behind it because maybe they're just physically not seeing what's there? Yeah, I mean, and this is something the, the market is currently trying to figure out collectively that the the lack of transparency that's in place really hinders some of the activities to act. Whereas uh, a year ago, you know, we've seen a lot more trust within the marketplace and corporates are buying offsets to to net out their own internal sustainability objectives. This year, we're definitely seeing a bit more of the hesitation coming into the market. But I don't think that should stop people from wanting to, to believe in shifting capital or its programs, I don't think it should stop the market from not acting at all or just sitting by the sidelines because ultimately we still have an existing climate issue. We need continue to preserve our forests. We do need to come up with other ways to ensure that we could prevent sea levels from rising and alternative ways from using some of the more emission-heavy materials like cement and steel and other to adapt to cleaner, greener solutions. One of the big ways that the carbon market has really helped you know, drive some of the, the capital has been believed that there's governance that oversees the transactability of these credits and that you could take a credit that's that's originated from one country and be able to utilize that towards offsetting a footprint that's committed in another country. And these are kind of agreements that's been recognized from a sovereign level, you know, where the countries do meet on an annual basis and say, this is how we think we could motivate the global market where the developing countries are being helped by the developed countries and shifting money to continue to drive up and promote that types of uh, incentive. And I think you you captured it. This is a global commodity. It's not just something that needs to be discussed locally and it can be leveraged globally, which yes, you know, maybe it's not just the lack of transparency or the fact that you can't see it, that distrust is there. Uh, I think it's also maybe the lack of understanding what the reporting metrics are and how to how to actually capture that in a report that can't be picked apart by the next person, right? When you have a moving baseline, that becomes a little bit of a challenge to report out to celebrate success that you have had as a company. I think the baseline for sure, you know, it continues to evolve, but it evolves in a good way, right? In, a, in the sense that it puts pressure on reducing year over year. The baseline is one thing. Measuring your own performance is another. And just starting with putting that data out there. And you as an organization might just want to see that for yourself as opposed to being ready to have it publicly displayed. You could start tracking your own footprint and, and coming up with ways to measure quarter over quarter, year over year. And that's a starting point. That's where we're seeing a lot of smaller organizations that may not be a, a publicly traded company that are doing this on a voluntary basis.
because they do want to recognize their own footprint. And even if it's just buying offsets for their own, you know, net zero objective, we're seeing that taking place. That's a good starting point, in my opinion. I think this is fuzzy for a lot of folks. And quite frankly, some of the offsets, we really want to scrutinize these projects and understand, you know, the viability of some of these projects because Tara and Maggie both said, okay, a barrel of oil that's produced in Canada. It was produced. I can trace it. I can touch it. I mean, thinking about risk at a high level, though, I mean, I, I hear about double counting, you know, things like that for sure that you touched on. But what are some of the opportunities? If you could boil it down to for the risk nerd, the resident risk nerd, what are some of the key risks and opportunities? Yeah, I think the opportunities is that continue to incentivize better technology, we meaning the government. There's a lot of subsidies being granted to help drive some of the innovation. Even as today, I've seen 350 million or so eligible to different states who are plugging these abandoned wells, right? Just to make sure that there's some ability to stop these leakage from just coming up unattended to. So with the the recent uh, Inflation Reduction Act, it's really helped motivate a lot of producers, the technology companies, other parts of our commodities ecosystem to really think about what's the best way for us to get involved and, and tap into some of these tax incentives or credits that are being given out, but at the same time help us to reduce our own internal footprint. Jasmine, you know, we've talked really about the what, again, trying to compare it to a tangible asset, like a gallon of oil or a piece of coal. And you've really highlighted the opportunities here of those transactions. I guess, who are the players in this? If we talk about the who now, who are the customers, the suppliers, who's asking for it, who's receiving it, who is benefiting from it? I I think... The demand side is still a little bit slow to act. This is where kind of on the start of the conversation, I've learned that if you have demand, you'll have supply because people are willing to pay you more for it. With all the corporate commitments that we've seen that were basically laid out for a 2030 goal or 2050 goal, we know that this is coming. The demand is going to be on the other side. It's going to take us a bit of time, but there is commitments that investors and stakeholders are holding these corporates accountable towards. And and their ratings are given on the back of some of these commitments that they've put out there. It could be as little as a plan to get there or an actual execution or an activity that they've taken place to get there. Like these are going to be what the the C-suites are going to be held accountable to, to deliver. There's lots of opportunities for people to get involved. And, you know, obviously government subsidizing it with grants and whatnot is incentive to do so. I've been actively working with oil and gas producers who sees their importance role that they play in energy as a whole, but also the energy transition isn't lost on them. And you see the big global major oil companies, they've got a renewable arm. They've got a desk that only trades low carbon products. They have their conventional oil and gas operator assets that they're still continuing to participate in. They are putting more and more of that focus and shifting that towards some of the transitional value chains within their integrated operations. And that's a great sign to see, you know, someone who's been this much amount of time in this space, exciting to, to see some of that change taking place and that commitment that's put out there. 
You've mentioned a little bit about governance. Who do you think will be in charge of governing these types of assets? Right now, it's a pretty much self-governing marketplace for the most part, at least in the voluntary side of things. But I definitely think that in order to, to have integrity behind this marketplace, you will want some form of a regulatory body oversight, whether that be CFTC for commodities, if it is commodities, or the SEC for securities governance. Like there should be some form of a arm's length oversight, in my opinion, that should come into this market. It is an evolving market. It's still a small market, but there's projections of how, you know, what the potential a carbon market could grow into in the next 10, 20 years. So knowing that, it would be great to have some assurance that there will be regulatory bodies that would be having some oversight in this space, kind of like how the crypto market is started up. Going through, like, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, I think that'd be a good, good way to see how that gets evolved because you would need some of that, especially talking about instruments or credits that may not be that physical, tangible thing. I mean, it is a digital market at the end of the day. And should that be its own asset class? Perhaps, because now you're really taking one barrel of oil and then identifying or tagging it with 20 different other environmental externalities that could potentially be traded on that and not the actual physical barrel. In the physical world, the barrel of oil world, <laughs> there's the the good, better, best model, right? Where you've got a good barrel of oil, a best barrel of oil, where you've got quality associated with the offerings that are out there not just the quantity. And so I'm curious, is there a quality aspect or different levels that we can look at carbon credits? Are there different levels that are associated with it? And how does that work? Yeah, the carbon market is super interesting in that sense. You know, what is a uh, good carbon credit and what's just pretty much an average carbon credit? And you have rating agencies that really provide a lot more color in that sense. What we've seen when we were of trading a standardized contract is that it helps the market if there's an instrument that's standardized and if it's fungible enough where a lot of the what's good, what's bad kind of gets shuffled to the side and have some form of a common denominator where certain vetting already took place so that when you buy a contract or this instrument, you'll know regardless of the origin of this credit, you know, where the country's from, what the project it's uh, originated from, has gone through certain types of uh, qualification, then you you find safety in trading that instrument. And, and with that knowledge, it brings a lot more of the liquidity into the marketplace within a lot of the smaller developers who potentially may not have access to the bigger marketplace now could start also play within the same realm right? Because now you're aggregating a lot of these small projects into one pool and that pool gets tapped into by anyone who's willing to, to participate in, in trading it. And when you continue to grow that pool, that's where the liquidity comes in. That's where the participation comes in. However, there should be differentiation that comes with those that really establish high rigor around what how that carbon credit is generated, the type of technologies that's been used, that the intricacy that's that's involved in identifying the carbon equivalents to, to create of the emissions that were saved and also the due diligence that's gone in there, right? So those are just like tracking how did this carbon credit come about. But 
all the other additionalities and and the S and the G that's involved, not just on the environmental, but did it create jobs? You know, did it turn animals or, you know, kind of a pool of insects that we didn't think were, you know, in danger are now being saved because we've preserved a certain plot of land or certain location within a piece of area. I think those are all add-ons that one should take into account when they're trying to look at the quality of something. But you also don't want to confuse the market by having so many flavors and so many shades of gray, you want to have some form of a standardized pool where if you buy something into it, it has certain types of due diligence and vetting that took place and makes it easier for everyone to transact. We've covered a lot of topics when you think about the opportunities, the risks, I always bring it back to that. Could you pull everything together for us? You know, How does futures solution help provide market capabilities? Yeah, we, we like our SMART program to be where governance gets adapted by the marketplace, the roles that are defined under that governance are accepted and approved by the users, where a bank to subscribe into this program, knowing that they're lending to someone or developer or producer with certain rigor that's been captured, uh, where a end user who subscribes to the program knows that when they're buying that barrel of crude oil or that MMBT of gas or, or that carbon credit has verified data points that tells them exactly where this credit or this offset, where the end user can tap into this program and know exactly where their scope one, two, and three gets impacted when they look at that value chain or the supply chain. And, and this is something that is really important to all of us at the end of the day. It's like, well, you know, three is what sits with us as a consumer. Like, how do I identify or how do I make intelligent decisions around what's organic and what isn't if I don't know the information that comes with it? And again, what Future is looking to do, or we would like to see, is that standardization of the adoption for the governance of these various programs. And we, we like to say that we're we're like the, the Apple store and each of the programs that we are building out are the apps. It doesn't cost 99 cents to subscribe to it, but it is something where people subscribe into the app and they know what comes out of it because it's already gone through certain types of rigor and you know what to expect. So Jasmine, speaking of future, if you had a magic ball or crystal ball, what do you see for the future? Are there any physical or even non-physical assets that we're not looking at now that we can commoditize? I mean, if you think about how big this commodities market as a whole, there are so much opportunities there. You know, you, we're just talking about oil and gas, right? But what about you know, agriculture and all the soft commodities? There's so much there. There's refined products. There's things like sustainable aviation fuel that's on everyone's mind or at least a hot topic. There's this hydrogen there's ammonia, there's fertilizer. There, there's so much. And to us, it's like a tomato or a book or a phone, you know, but it all has certain parts that comes to build it. And it has an origin, it has a feedstock, it has a starting point. And each of that has or should have data around it so that we could continue to utilize data and put it onto the chain, put it onto the blockchain or some type of a digital ledger where then everyone has the ability to trace it back so that we could ensure that when you're making that claim that you're net zero or you're reduce your footprint by X percent, you have the ability to point your auditors to it, your customers to it, your producers to it, and anyone else that wants to see that proof. 
I love how y'all are fully embracing the entire life cycle, right? For for not just the risk, but the opportunities. Oh, thank you. I mean, we we started with the upstream side and then we you know looked at the midstream. It only makes sense if you actually tie in the entire supply chain. And this is what we're hearing from our customers. It's like, whilst that they like to play a part of this life cycle, like it only works if the entire supply chain is completed. I love it. So everything can be commoditized as long as you're tracking it right through its entire life cycle and looking at the assets and the attributes. Thank you, Jasmine, for joining us today. Now we'd like to get to know you a little bit more. We've got a series of fast questions that we'd like to ask you and quick answer. Don't think about it too much and no need to explain unless you feel it's necessary and we'll take it. You ready for this? Sure. All right. First question, if you could share a meal with anyone, living or dead, who would it be? I would say my two boys because they never sit through a whole meal with me They and I have to eat their leftovers. So if we could really sit down and, and have a full meal, that would be great. I can relate to that. Uh, Jasmine, what song would you sing at karaoke? I, I may have a win of it in mind. Oh, man, it's Eternal Flame. That was a college song. It's one of those sappy songs where it just makes people feel good. My go-to song, Palace in Buffalo, New York. That's (laughs) where the karaoke actions are happening. Perfect. Well, if you could just close your eyes, don't give me your hand, but if you could just close your eyes, what warning label would you say applies to you? What warning label applies to me? Wow beware uh, a talker or something i'm just a very sociable person you know i don't like i like it beware beware a talker i would appreciate that warning label if i were talking to you yeah yeah, exactly or walk away now or something like that there you go (laughs) walk away now (laughs) love that one that's the that's the warning walk, walk away now yeah like Probably not the best to wear at a networking event, but other than that, I love it. (laughs) All right. Last question. What has been on your mind recently that you hope to share with our listeners? I just want to see the market really coming together to really push this agenda forward. I think there's monetary reasons to do it. There's social reasons to do it. There's obligations on all of us to to want to see change happen in, in a very impactful way. It would be great to kind of pull all the technology and the brains and the mission together to really drive this big agenda collectively as a society. You know, this is something that my organization is very, very focused on. Uh, It's what we're pulling in other infrastructure partners to do the same. So, you know, I think the message is really, you're listening to these types of podcasts and and, and wanting to get involved. Like we need to share that mission and we need to all kind of take part in achieving it. And I love it. Once again, it all comes back to my favorite hashtag teamwork makes the dream work. (laughs) And so thank you so much, Jasmine, for joining us today. We hope that you had fun on the WEN podcast. We know we had a fun time having you and I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review and follow when on social media. I hope to see you next time.